This is episode 124 of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's guest is Three Down Nation contributor JC Abbott. JC and I talk about the news around the CFL, including our look at the standings in the East and West Division. JC breaks down what's going right and what's going wrong for each team around the league. So sit back and enjoy today's episode. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you're like most people, you strive to eat healthy as much as you can, but it gets really difficult when life gets in the way. We get busy, we're running around doing lots of things, it's hard. Being able to eat healthy on the go is super important more than ever now, and that's why I'm here to tell you about G2G Protein Bars. They're the best protein bar for eating healthy on the go. It's made with all natural ingredients, they're fresh, it tastes like homemade, but it's even better. G2G Bars have 18 grams of protein and are gluten-free. With eight different flavors, there's so many different things that you can enjoy about the great tastes of G2G bars and what they have to offer. They're fresh, healthy, and delicious. Make sure to get yours at g2gbar.ca or at your local retailer in Canada or the US. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Sit back and enjoy stories and insight from sports icons from all over. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's very special guest from the world of Canadian football, JC Abbott from Three Down Nation. Welcome to the show, man. I'm really g- glad to have you on. And it's always a pleasure to be able to chat Canadian football with you. Well, I, you are probably the only person, Matias, that has more factoids uh, buried in their head than I do. You blew me away when I first met you at the Combine. So it's my pleasure to be here with you. This season... In all that the league has been through in the last two years with the missing the, missing the year, shortened season, and now here we are, and the CFL I don't think has been anything short of remarkable through the first seven weeks. We've had home-and-home matchups, a touchdown Atlantic rematch last within the last few days. That was absolutely wild, and there's been some crazy thrillers and more good games that are coming our way in the next few weeks. What has been your assessment overall of the season so far as a whole compared with the expectations going into the year, knowing all that we had missed in the last two years? I think it's been absolutely fantastic. It's It's been great football game after great football game. Basically, you know, with a, a few blowouts sprinkled in, most of them have been wildly entertaining late finishes just really classic cfl football and uh, as much as we were happy to have the cfl back last year and any sort of football can be entertaining there was sort of a lack of those classic cfl matchups i i don't think the teams were were fully recovered from that missed season it, it hurt offenses the excitement seems to be coming back it seems like classic cfl and I'm sure the league will will try and take credit for it with with some of the the rule changes that were implemented in the off season, the changing of the hash marks, saying that that's why offenses have come back. I think that of course plays a, a small role, but mostly it's just having a full training camp, having a real off season, being prepared for a full 18 game schedule that's got these teams in in better shape and better performing overall. And we as the fans are benefiting from it right now. I want to ask you about the hash marks. Cause when I saw that the rule changes were first posted on CFL.ca, 
I thought it was some sort of prank until I went and looked for myself. Do you really believe that it has made as much of a positive impact as they're aiming for? Or is it something that could have been left alone and we never would have seen a difference? I I think we probably wouldn't have noticed a dramatic difference had we not made that change. I don't think it radically um, alters the game to the extent that maybe Randy Ambrosi would like to say it does. Um, Has it had a positive effect on offenses in some regards? I I think it has. Uh, It's made some other things more difficult, uh, certainly as well. Um, I don't think the difference in offensive production would be dramatic had things stayed the same. And and to be quite frank, some of the changes I was expecting to see uh, in terms of the way it would affect the game haven't really manifested yet. Like we had this conversation that now, you know, the field side um, is going to be or the, the boundary side is going to be wider than it was before because they moved the hash marks on both. So uh, that will linebacker position was supposed to become more like the Sam linebacker, a hybrid linebacker DB, more of a coverage type. We, we heard Chris Jones talk about this a ton in the offseason. It's going to change the way we employ people on defense. Well, it really hasn't. You look at the guys who are playing will linebacker right now at a high level in the CFL, it's the same guys who were playing before. You got guys like Larry Dean, who's playing in the middle. No one would mistake him for a defensive back. He's still having a high level of success in Saskatchewan in that will linebacker spot. You know, Chris Jones is using Adam Konar in that role in Edmonton, who's certainly not ever going to be mistaken for a halfback or a safety, right? So um, it hasn't changed the game as dramatically as I think people were anticipating. And that's just one of the examples of, of how. What's your favorite rule change and what's your least favorite rule change and why? Oh, that's a tough one, Matias. I think favorite, I like the two quarterbacks on the field. I think that's a... A sneaky little thing that it doesn't change the game, you know, overall teams are, are using it sparingly, but you look at, at some of the things that Hamilton's done the last couple of weeks with having Dan Emmons and, and Matthew Schiltz on the field at the same time. Uh, it was crazy to me that, that it was illegal to do that in the CFL in the past with some of the dynamic athletes we've had at quarterback to not allow, you know, multiple guys on the field at once. Uh, was ridiculous to me. So I like that change. It, it's not a big thing, obviously. It's a small tweak, but one that can give us, you know, every couple of weeks an exciting play that maybe you don't expect. Uh, and I think that's worthwhile. Um, in terms of rule changes, I don't like. There, there's none I really hated in the in the group that was um, put in. I think. Overall, I'm maybe not a fan of the the two misconduct penalties resulting in an automatic ejection. I think that can sometimes be difficult to enforce for the referees. And and when that ejection takes place, I think it's almost a worse look for the league to have a guy ejected than have a guy who had three misconduct penalties in a game, right? It it puts a spotlight on the issue rather than dampens it down. I, I don't think that you'll ever get that sort of player roughness completely out of the game as much as the CFL wants it to. And, and you're just sort of highlighting it with that role. But again, I'm not a, a, a major opponent to any of the nine changes that they make this offseason. 
I thought that the no yards was a bit strange. I know that they're trying to promote more returns, but maybe that's just my brain being conditioned to when the ball bounces and they let it let it die. Okay, sure, whatever. Get within the five yard halo, but seeing fifteen yards enforced for something like that, it still just kind of irks me for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, it, it doesn't look quite right. I agree with you there, Matthias. Um, certainly, it's it's helping offenses in terms of field position. One of the things I worried about with that rule was that because taking it on the bounce and taking it in the air are now the same um, penalty, that it would incentivize guys just to to let it bounce, to not take it on on the run. Uh, I don't think we've seen that. So to me, that that has reduced some of my worries in that regard, in that guys are still fielding kicks in the same way, and it's not taking away from the return game in my mind, but it still looks weird when you're getting that 15 yard penalty for a play. That's, I mean, it's pretty difficult for a cover guy going down there, especially with a bouncing football to make sure he's five yards away. But in the end, maybe that's one of those things that's actually uh, helping offenses the most of, of the rules they're putting in is, is giving them that added 15 yards of field position or rather added 10 yards of field position uh, on those bouncing no yard penalties. We're two weeks away from the halfway point, or maybe three or four, depending on which team has what bye week. But week seven, there's 21 weeks, or a third of the way through at the very least, and for some teams towards the halfway point. What we expected the standings to look like may be similar to what people were thinking it was going to look like, and for others, maybe not so much. Looking at the East in particular, Ottawa have lost most of their games by less than a score, but yet still have to register a win. What do you make of the situation in the nation's capital with Paul Apolis in his third year as a head coach and with them figuring out what to do a quarterback with Masoli still out for a long period of time? It's a tough one. I feel bad for, for Ottawa fans because I certainly thought this team was going to be a great cup contender. I think they're wildly improved with the moves that new GM Sean Burke has made in the off season. But it's just been, you know, inches away on each of these games. You know, five of the six, as you mentioned, are one score losses. And I think they've been competitive, but it's been mistakes. And, and quite frankly, a few times it's been coaching mistakes, game management, time clock mistakes by Paul Lapolis, which is unfortunate to see. And and he's an experienced enough guy that that shouldn't be happening. Um, now with the injury to Jeremiah Mazzoli, I mean, that's a situation that's just taken out of your hands, right? You're now missing your franchise quarterback and whatever you're going to get from Nick Arbuckle or Caleb Evans, whoever you, you end up starting long-term, it's not going to be the same you would have got from Jeremiah Mazzoli. I mean, that is a premier player in this league and it's extremely unfortunate that we're going to be missing him. Um, for right now, I think Caleb Evans has to be the guy. He hasn't shown us anything in the last two weeks that would merit benching him in favor of Arbuckle, who hasn't looked tremendous over the last couple of years in his own right. Um, until such a point as as Evans proves that he's not the guy, I would continue going forward with him because he's put up some some decent numbers. He's looked uh, pretty good thus far. Um, and he's a young guy that I think they think has potential to be a future starter for the team. Jeremiah Mazzoli at one point this uh, in training camp said, you know, he's the future of the Ottawa Red Blacks after I'm gone. So if you've got this opportunity and he's playing well enough, I think it behooves you to keep rolling, rolling with him. 
Um, but it's nice to have Arbuckle there just to, you know, have that insurance for a young guy when he does stumble, if he stumbles. Now, there have been questions with people who have looked at Paul Apolis's coaching record. And I know that it's a, a difficult conversation to have because there's so many factors and variables that go into, well, our, well, this quarterback has won this many games or this coach has won this many games, but is it really all just based on them or are there other things involved? Now, Paul Apolis's coaching record is, as a head coach is not good, bottom line. But at the same time, he hasn't really had a true elite starting quarterback really with any of the teams that he's played, he's coached for, especially considering he's had Masoli for what, two, three weeks. And then all of a sudden he gets hurt for most of the year. Do you think Paul Apolis still has what it takes to be a head coach that can lead a team to the promised land? Or do you think that the book is out on Paul Apolis? I don't know if the book is out. I think sometimes guys like him who are, taking over at head coach. He's been so innovative as an offensive coordinator. We saw that from his time in Winnipeg. And I don't think we've seen that in Ottawa. And sometimes that can be because you're taking on too much, right? As the head coach, it's difficult to be your own OC as well. Um, that's a lot of added responsibility you're you're taking on. And I I wonder if, if Lapalise needs a little bit of help. You know, somebody to... Uh, yeah, lighten his load, whatever it may be. And and maybe that's just being a, exclusively a head, head coach and just bringing in a guy that he trusts to help run the offense. Um, I don't know what the solution is. Uh, he's certainly on the hot seat right now because, again, you've got a new GM in place in Ottawa and Sean Burke, uh, who by all accounts seems to get along well with Paul Lapley's or has seemed to. He wasn't the guy who hired him. And that's always an awkward situation when you've got a head coach that the GM didn't hire. We saw that manifest itself with Danny Machocha and Kahari Jones in Montreal just a few weeks ago. The same thing could begin to happen in Ottawa. If you're Sean Burke and you know you've put together a much improved roster, things are right there. You're almost on the cusp of winning with the talent that you've provided. And it's some of these small coaching errors that that take over. I I don't know. I certainly don't think there's a midseason change coming because I there's nobody in place uh, in Ottawa at the moment who could really take over. Um, just the way that staff is constructed, uh, you essentially be left without a real OC, which would be a, a difficult situation to be in. Uh, you'd need some young guys to to step up. I mean, someone like Bob Dice or Mike Benavides could certainly be an interim head coach, but that doesn't help you on the offensive side where it's a bunch of fairly young assistants all across the board. Uh, so you're in an awkward situation for a midseason change. But certainly, if this isn't turned around by the end of the year, you'd have to think that there's a change coming for the Red Blacks um, where Sean Burke can go and find his guy. And again, because even with other teams, people were were slamming the table for the Hamilton Tiger Cats and they were questioning, well, is Steinhauer the guy? But I mean, they're in a more or less a pretty similar situation. 
a few close games here and there, and boom, you're one and five. Now we saw the Lions in 2011 turn around from an 0 and five start to win the Great Cup at home in one of the most remarkable comeback stories for a Great Cup victory in recent years. But at the same time, wins and losses are black and white on paper. And so it has to at least make the gears turn in the head of a GM, even if they're not going to make a midseason coaching change, because you're right. There aren't many people that they can just plug and play from a another team or B just within their own staff. But at the end of the day, what do you think the, the, the threshold is that Paul Apolis has to break with Ottawa in order to ensure that he's back in 2023. It's hard to say what the threshold is. I, I think it certainly has to be a playoff berth, right? Um, and that might not even be good enough if there's a first round exit. So um, I think he has to be competitive down the stretch and I, he needs to make the playoffs in, in the East. Now you look at that division and, and that might not be a, a tall task in terms of wins the way it's looking right now. But uh, I think it's it's difficult to justify keeping a guy around um, missing the playoffs again after all the changes that they've made. And you talk about Hamilton. I think there's sort of a, maybe a similar situation going on there. Now, Orlando Steinhauer has much more goodwill uh, that obviously taking the team to two straight great cap appearances but he took on a bigger role this year, right? He's not just the head coach. He's the president of football operations as well. The de facto GM now that Burke is in Ottawa. Uh, and so he's made a lot of choices. And you look at you know some of the struggles that Dane Evans has had uh, early in the season. He looked a lot better last week. So hopefully he's turned the corner. But the question is going to be asked at some point if he, you know, has another stretch of poor play and high turnover play. Well, who made the call to move on from Jeremiah Mazzoli and, and start Dane Evans as the guy? Well, Orlando Steinhauer made that call, right? That was a choice that he made as the president of football operations and the head coach. When you've got those dual roles, it's a little bit of extra pressure on you to perform um, because you can't just say, well, it w- I didn't have the talent, right? You were the guy who who made those choices and you've got to stick by them. What do you make of the situation in Hamilton this year? Do you believe that they're a team that could end up winning the East and, or going to the great cup? Or do you think that they might be in a bit of, in a little bit of trouble here? They're definitely in trouble. I, I think there's still a team that's in contention. I mean, all four teams in the East are just because of how poor that division is. And you look at, you know, Toronto that's leaguing right now, and you wonder about some of their their veteran presence, how that hand or how that works late in the season. Uh, if some of those guys maybe you know, decrease in performance as the year uh, as the year goes on because of their age, so they don't look like an unstoppable force. You know, Montreal's got its own set of problems going on. Really, there's it's up for grabs to anyone. Even Ottawa could come and have a run. Uh, and get one of those top two spots because I think there ultimately will be a Western crossover uh, into the East. Um, but it's anybody's game at this stage, which is a situation we've come become accustomed to seeing in the East Division over the last few years. Um, there's going to be a sort of mediocre middling team that ends up getting into the playoffs and probably going to the Grey Cup. 
And sometimes all that matters is how you perform in that last game. Um, we've seen it before with nine and nine franchises coming in and winning. Um, it's not impossible that we see something else like that this year because there is enough talent on all four of these squads uh, to to make a run at it if they put it together at the right time. And even when you look at the Western Conference, it's it's really interesting towards the the middle half of the table towards the bottom. Winnipeg and Calgary and BC are all seen as the three premier strong teams with Winnipeg having a lot of veteran presence and that championship pedigree. Calgary always being a threat because of how well their organization has been run the last 20 plus years. And BC have come into their own with Nathan Rourke at the helm. But when you look at Saskatchewan and Edmonton, Edmonton, yes, they brought in Chris Jones. They did unfortunately lose Trey Ford for a big chunk of time here. But what do you make of Edmonton's ability to recover either a once they get Trey Ford back or B with the situation they have at hand with Taylor Cornelius leading the way for them with the rest of that division and, and how it's stacked up. I, I don't see Edmonton being a real contender this year. And I didn't expect them to be going in. Uh, It's an incredibly tall task for Chris Jones. And as we all know, he's going to go through every option on that roster until he finds the combination that he likes. And once he puts it together, I'm sure they'll make a huge year two jump. Um, But right now, I mean, he's, he's basically cutting a starter every week, which is an odd sort of strategy. Um, But there's a lot of change and turnover on that roster. It's hard to have a week to week consistency. If you're, you're, taking that strategy now it might be better for them in the long run you know he's always been sort of quantity over quality in order to find the quality and that's the strategy he's employed this year getting a lot of guys playing time a lot of looks and a lot of different and unusual positions to try and find those diamonds in the rough that he can use to his advantage um but i i think there's still going to be more losses than wins at the end of this year based on the way they've performed um, and, uh, my level of confidence with their quarterbacking position is probably more than I expected it to be going into the season, but Taylor Cornelius, I think, unless he's made just a massive jump, like the turnovers are going to come for him. They, they have at every level of competition that he's played at, whether it was uh, college at Oklahoma state or, or the XFL, um, he's been interception prone, particularly in key moments, and we haven't quite seen that yet this season. We saw it a ton last year when he started. Um, I'm still wary of him as the full-time guy, and Trey Ford, is, as much as I love Trey Ford, uh, and that one game was you know, a nice glimpse at what he can do. He wasn't a world beater by any stretch, and he's a guy that is young, a rookie struggle U Sports sets a, a big task uh, to come in and start for a CFL team. Uh, I'm not sure either of those guys is right now, you know, the guy to elevate um, a pretty, you know, hit and miss roster into the playoff contention. Right, they're they're both solid quarterbacks, but they're not going to elevate a team in a way like a, uh, a Zach Caleros or a Nathan Rourke or a Bo Levi Mitchell has traditionally. 
And when you consider how difficult it is with the situation that Edmonton is in this year, Trey Ford has shown flashes of brilliance and he has a great skill set. But at the same time, like you said, for you sports quarterback to graduate and go to be the rookie on not just any CFL team, but a team that finished last the previous year, you don't want to put him in a position to damage any potential development that he could have or strides that he could make because of being almost put in a position to fail because he does have the skill set, but you know, apples that are surrounded by other bad apples, eventually they become bad apples themselves. So if he's, you know, for the, you know, for any fruit analogy lovers there for, for lack of a better analogy, I mean, if, if he's not in a place where there's a lot of consistency with coaching personnel, you may see some hindrance in his development. And I think it would be a shame because there's been a lot of U sports quarterbacks we've seen the last 20 years that maybe could have gotten a shot in the CFL and didn't. And whether it's because of a negative stigma around Canadians versus the American coaches or whatever you want to call it, there's a real opportunity here for him to be a great player. And if that's taken away because of inconsistency or a lack of organizational functionality, I think that would be really unfortunate for Trey Ford. Yeah, in some ways, I think this injury has been a little bit of a blessing in disguise because he came off that one win. He's got his taste of game experience, um, and now he can sit back a little bit and learn again, which we've seen is traditionally guys coming into the CFL, uh, American or Canadian. It takes a year at least, right? Not a lot of rookies come in from either side of the border and perform at an extremely high level. And... uh as you said, putting him into the fire too early, you risk ruining or or developing some bad habits on Trey Ford's part. Um, now that he's injured, he's he's had another couple of weeks to sit back, learn, and I think there's a way that once he's healthy, you may see more of a, a two quarterback offense, as it were, because both him and Taylor Cornelius have different skill sets. Um, I, you might see uh, Stephen McAdoo get them both on the field. Uh, in the coming games once they're both healthy. And you may, I mean, the combination that the Bombers had with Kolaros and Strevler in 2019 was a great one-two punch. And maybe something like that could exist in the cards for Edmonton too, with Trey Ford being 1A and Cornelius being 1B, depending on the situation. But again, Edmonton have a lot of kinks to work out before they can start, you know, writing in pen who's in what position as Chris Jones seems to be making a, Making fans purchase a new program every single week, <laughs> and uh, and switching guys' positions. I've never seen so many wide receivers start at defensive back in a season. It's a different guy every week, so it's really interesting. <laughs> now, Saskatchewan is a team in the West that is in a bit of a weird position. Fajardo has been playing hurt, and now this last week against the Argos at home was inactive, and they had Jake Dolagala start. I don't think he looked bad by any means, but obviously, again, he's a rookie. It takes time. He's not just going to show up and light it up. And even if he does, it might be a fluke one game and you get exposed the next. And it takes that process of a season to really get your your wits about you in Canadian football. What do you see in the future for Saskatchewan with juggling the Fajardo situation, him as their long-term quarterback, and how they're going to hone in maybe some of the mistakes or some of the pieces they're missing so that they can actually make a good run at playing in the great cup at home come late November. To me, Saskatchewan is a team that's going to be 
extremely dangerous late in the year if a few things fall their way. I like them just as much as I liked any of these top three teams in the West Division coming into this season. I thought they would they would go to their home Great Cup. Uh, and the biggest thing that's prevented them from being in that upper echelon at this point has been injuries and health and and things that have nothing to do with the way a football team executes, right? Coming into the year, I talked about how dynamic that receiving core could be. I mean, the three Americans were, you know, all all-star caliber guys. You had Shaq Evans, Kyron Moore, Duke Williams. Well, in the last week, you know, Kyron Moore and Shaq Evans have both been on the sixth game for extended periods of time with injury. Kyron Moore has yet to play this year. He's starting to get back healthy and should be in the lineup in a few weeks. Evans got hurt a couple weeks into the season. And then Duke Williams was suspended last week. So they went into that game with their third string quarterback. And, you know, none of those star American receivers that everyone was talking about to start the year. And it's it's been a similar sort of deal elsewhere on the roster. They're the most injured team in the CFL. And last week was not a reflection of how good that team can be because of the COVID outbreak and just how many guys they were missing, uh, essentially starting practice roster players all across the board. It was remarkable how competitive they were in that matchup. Now, Kogi Fajardo needs to get healthy because I think that knee is a real issue. Um, I was shocked by some of the t- uh, comments he made at Touchdown Atlantic talking about how it may even put his career in jeopardy if he takes more more hits to that knee, which I was absolutely flabbergasted that he would say publicly. But um, if that's the way he's feeling, it just tells you how serious that injury currently is. And I believe it from from looking at him walking around and how much pain he seemed to be in. Uh, they need to get him healthy, even if it means losing a few games along the way. Um, but once they get all those guys back in the lineup, right? If you have a healthy Fajardo, if you have a healthy receiving core, you know, if you've got that defensive line clicking on all cylinders, like we've seen at stages this year and just absolutely ripping apart opposing offenses when, when Pete Robertson gets back, this is going to be a very, very dangerous football team with as much talent, if not more than some of the other contending franchises. And at this stage, Maybe it comes from a crossover, which obviously Saskatchewan doesn't want because they want home playoff games all along the way to the Grey Cup. But ultimately, I think this is a team that can still get to that promised land and be in Regina come that weekend in November to play at home for all the marbles. And with the top three teams in the West remaining, you look at BC with what they've done to improve this year. Calgary and Winnipeg, who have still shown how well-oiled of a machine they are running on two great cups in a row. But first, I want to talk about BC. Relatively close to home for yourself, and you've gotten to have a up-close look at Nathan Rourke and the Lions. What have been your thoughts on how they've performed this year, and what are your expectations for them down the stretch? I mean, Nathan Rourke has been sensational, particularly in those first couple weeks. Um, but even in the last few, when he's had some intermittent struggles, you, you see that the talent is unquestionably there. Like that throw last week to Lucky Whitehead on the touchdown, where he bought time, bought time, 
kept his eyes downfield and unleashed it. He makes at least one of those throws every week. And they're as good as you'll see anywhere in, in pro football. So I've been extremely impressed with Nathan Rourke. Um, I worry at times that they may become overly reliant on certain aspects of their game. I mean, the, he's extremely good with getting the ball out of his hands quick, that, that quick hitting offense. Um, but I think I either someone has told him to focus on the throws or he himself has decided that he's got to always be a passing quarterback. He's not going to be a runner because in the last two weeks, he has not taken off to run uh, on a real carry once, which to me is egregious based on how athletic and talented he is on the ground. Um, and it's there at times. There are times where he can take off where he's running a read option and he's got the edge. He's got the corner and he should go and he hasn't been doing it. And I'm not quite sure why he's been making those decisions, I think he's putting some pressure on himself to perform um, in, in a passing uh, capacity similar to the other star quarterbacks in the league, but he's got weapons in his feet, right? He's dangerous in that regard. And I think if BC really wants to be the dominant team that they were in the first couple of weeks and wants to expand that throughout the season and be in contention, then they need to be a little bit more versatile with that. He needs to run the football more. And I think they need to to put a few more wrinkles into the offense because at times it can be um, a little bit predictable. And part of that is by design because it's quick reads. It's getting the ball out, out fast, um, always hitting the open man. But defenses are starting to catch on. And now you need to show them a couple of wrinkles to make them worry about you hitting them over the top. And you saw it a bit in the Winnipeg game. I don't know if it was because of the uncertainty of Winnipeg being able to play contain with their D-line or, like you said, him wanting to dial it up and be able to rifle tons of beautiful balls down the field. But at the end of the day, if they are too one-dimensional with the style of offense they play, I think that's where they ran into issues in the past when they had Mike Riley at the helm. And obviously, Mike Riley is one of the best quarterbacks that we've seen, not only in the last 20 years, but in the CFL ever. He's phenomenal. He's retired now. But when he was on BC, they looked like a throw first, run second team, and they didn't have a really well-developed running game. And then it have you know, someone like Butler, who actually can be very, very explosive and is a very dynamic running back. So if they, I mean, and again, they do, they have incorporated the running game a lot more this year, but I, like you, I agree. If Rourke isn't able to use the full toolkit that he has at his disposal, that might be a setback for BC in bigger games when there's a lot more on the line than edging wins over Hamilton or learning against Winnipeg, because come November it's then the bolts are going to be flying at, 110 miles an hour. Yeah. I I think what a lot of people don't realize about this BC Lions running game, they they look at some of the things James Butler's tongue in there. They go, oh, massive improvement. The, this offensive line must be better. It's essentially the same unit it was before. They've subbed out Hunter Stewart for Philip Norman, which I would argue is not even necessarily an upgrade. Um, 
but it's essentially the same unit. What what has happened that has allowed the run game to be successful at the tail end of last year and at the start of this year is they shrunk the playbook. Kelly Bates, the the offensive line coach, he said he entered last year with about a dozen different concepts that they were running inside, outside, all sorts of different things. And they couldn't execute them. So he slowly wiggled it down. And at the end of last season, they essentially went down to just one running scheme. It's it's only inside zone runs. That's all they run. So it's extremely predictable for the defense because they don't have, you know, different looks that they can they can show you. They're only gonna run the one thing they do extremely well, what works for that offensive line to be successful, and they'll hit some runs that way. But in order to keep it consistent, because defenses can stop that because they know what's hitting it, they need to have Rourke able to stretch the edge or they need to have Lucky Whitehead coming on some of those jet sweeps coming across and and stretching the defense laterally so then they can hit it up the middle. And I think what we saw last week against Hamilton, there were two massive runs by James Butler up the middle that were fantastic. And that was essentially all his production on the evening. Everything else went for zero or one or, or negative one yards. He couldn't get a sniff except for those two runs. And part of it was because Rourke was not pulling the ball on those RPOs or, or those rig options and stretching them laterally. And to get a delicate, absolutely wiped Lucky Whitehead off the map on two attempts like a uh, jet sweep because he's just as, atle- uh, as athletic as him. And as a result... The Hamilton defense, which is a a great running defense, was able to completely stuff up that run game when it mattered most. And it it diminished the ability of of the BC defense to be able to move the football because they have been committed enough to the run game that they were still attempting it on first down, getting no yardage. And then they run a quick hitting passing attack that can reliably get you five to seven yards per pass. But if you're in third and nine and you throw a seven yard pass, well, or if you're in first or second and nine and you throw a seven yard pass, it's still third and two, right? You're probably going to have to punt. So they were not in a good situation. Part of it was because the running game was not dynamic enough, not versatile enough because Rourke wasn't using himself as a threat in that regard. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things shake out with the schedule. The Bombers have been 7-0 so far, and they have a a stretch of tough games up at hand as we're recording today. We You see that the Bombers this week are going to be playing against the Calgary Stampeders, and that runs Saturday night. And that'll be an interesting matchup that a lot of fans will want to see, regardless of which team they cheer for. And they play the Montreal Alouettes at home, and then they have more road games up after that. So... This the season is a marathon, and now that it's back to 18 games for the first time since 2019, I think we'll really get a a look at how these teams are going to be able to handle the full schedule. Absolutely, and and right now Winnipeg, even though they haven't looked dominant in every single game, they just continue to find ways to win, and and to me that's a testament of a great organization. Uh, I can't say enough. Uh, about what Mike O'Shea has done there. I think he's a remarkable uh, head coach in terms of of culture and and building that winning attitude. Um, There are teams that maybe have more versatile weapons than them on offense right now, uh, but they're continuing 
to just do enough every week, no matter the competition, um, to to win. And you saw it when they blew out BC. You saw it when they squeaked past Calgary. They can take on these top top teams. And this week again, it's going to be another tough test. And you know, it's hard to bet against them at this point because we haven't seen a run like this in a long time. What do you make of the running situation with Winnipeg? Brady Oliveira and Johnny Augustine have come in as now guys who are getting their first opportunity without Andrew Harris to be 1A and 1B. But Oliveira hasn't, he had a good game against Edmonton, hasn't had as much production, I think, as the team would like. And Johnny Augustine hasn't had as many looks, I think, as maybe he deserves. Mm. Yeah, it, it continues to baffle me why they don't give Augustine more carries considering how successful he's been on the few that he's had. He looks explosive every time he touches the football to me. Uh, and I would make a switch there if I was the coaching staff, but part of it is they need to adapt a little bit to those running back skill sets because they are not Andrew Harris, right? Andrew Harris is a true, or certainly at this stage of his career, it's a true power back, right? You, you can run gap scheme, schemes. You run him right up the gut. He's going to take first contact after you know two yards, and then he's going to grind for four, four more, no matter what, right? He's impossible to bring down on first contact. And that offensive line has been tremendous at executing those concepts and giving him you know, the opportunity to take one defender on one-on-one and bust through that first contact and gain yards, right? They've done that to as high a level as, as we've ever seen. Brady Oliveira is a very talented running back, but he's not quite the same power guy that Andrew Harris was. And neither is Johnny Augustine. Augustine's a little bit quicker, more of an outside runner in my mind. Oliveira needs more of a zone uh, sort of system to, to be able to pick and choose his holes and, and slash a little bit easier than Harris did. And, and they seem to be keeping the same run game concepts that were successful with Harris with two backs that, are not as well suited to it. I think they need to to make some shifts, throw a little bit more outside runs in there, a little bit more zone concepts. Um, I think their offensive line is talented enough to pull that off. Um, but right now it's, it's just not working. And I don't think it's necessarily because the guys up front are underperforming or the running backs they have are bad. It just seems like they're a mismatch of, of different guys. Um, who aren't entirely suited to to playing the same system. Well, JC, we are getting towards the end of our time on today's episode, so I'd like to do a few more wrap-up questions to have a little bit more fun and maybe get some you know some CFL history knowledge going here. Oh, geez. Okay. Let's go. Top three quarterbacks in the last 20 years. Top three quarterbacks in the last 20 years. Uh Ricky Ray still, he's the quarterback of my childhood. Uh, he's the guy who made me fall in love with football, so I have to put Ricky Ray on the list. Um, I'm going to say in his prime, there's no one I liked more than Michael Riley. Um, I know he, he played for both my childhood team and and the team I covered. Um, you know, At the end, he wasn't necessarily as good as he, he'd always been, but the toughness aspect of Michael Riley, just being able to stand in there and get pounded, he's on my list. And then number three, uh, 20 years. I'm trying to think who's retired in that span. I don't want to leave anyone off. 
I'll I'll say Bo Levi Mitchell just in the three. I know there's some guys, Hall of Fame guys. Calvillo's probably in the last twenty years too still, but his his success was a little bit before that, wasn't it? Calvillo's would his his prime would have been like late two thousands. Late two, I think put Calvillo on the list. I'm trying to think of timelines in twenty years. He's on the list then, of course, because he's the greatest of all time. I'm, I guess I'm thinking more in the last decade in my own mind. But yes, Calvillo is on my list for the last twenty years. I'm only I'm only twenty five, Matthias. So you know, twenty years is most of my life. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's been a lot better quarterbacks when we were younger compared to more recently because mm. you know henry burris calvillo ricky ray mike riley would have been towards the middle part of that span but yeah damon allen was was early childhood mm. you know that's also another one who i think you yeah. know third third in rushing ever you know as a quarterback and i think that's uh probably one of the craziest stats that is any an, that you can pull up in the cfl an insane stat damon allen is is remarkable in the sense that so often he was, you know, not just, you know, not considered the only guy or he had to compete in, with other dudes in, in those locker rooms or take over midway through seasons too. But he played for so long and he was so good for, for sp- specific points in his career that the numbers are absolutely insane. Um, so, I mean, the idea that, you know, Andrew Harris is still chasing him in terms of rushing yards, it, it boggles the mind. Now, which Grey Cup would you say in in your lifetime, for the first one, is the most exciting game that has happened? Oh, because there's man. two ones I know that people always think of in the in the span of our lifetime, and I want to see. I want to know which one you think is the most exciting. I'm trying to go through all the list. I mean, there's there's a ton that are just so so good. Uh, the uh, the one that that Ottawa won in overtime, I think probably takes it for me. That was an exceptional game. Uh, start to finish. Um, I'm trying to think of, of the other ones uh, that were, were just as good. Uh, there's so many great finishes. The thing about great cups is you go through the list and there's almost an iconic finish in each and every single one of them. I mean, I've been to the two in the last you know decade that, that have been played in BC. Uh, and one of them, of course, the Lions won uh, at home. So that's always a fond memory for me. And then the other, I was in the house for, for Brandon Banks' callback return. And to me, even though that, that was a disappointing finish in a lot of ways, the I, how iconic that moment is will always stick with me, especially being in that building. Because it was like a gut punch when it happened. I mean, I'm not a, a Ticats fan, and I was kind of rooting against Calgary, to be honest, because obviously Edmonton-born. Uh, but you you look at that moment, and you see a moment in history, and to have it taken away, you just felt sick in the stadium from that happening. So that that's probably high up there on my list as well. Uh, without looking at all the all the things in in front of me, I'll definitely go with the Ottawa overtime victory as number one, though. Do you have memories from when Edmonton beat Montreal in 05 in BC or no? Uh, not, not strong memories. Uh, I have, I have some memories uh, of that game uh, of watching it. It was shortly before I moved here, I believe. Uh, Cause I can remember watching it at home on the TV when it happened, but not vivid memories of that game uh, necessarily or the plays. And I was a little, 
little too young for that still, just about eight years old. I can remember Danny Machocha celebrating early at uh, that moment. I can remember. And I can remember the feeling in the house uh, when it was when it was one and, and we we're all celebrating. But uh, I, I can't remember the individual plays in that game like I can, can some of the recent Grey Cups. What do you think was the most boring Grey Cup that you've ever seen? <sighs> That's a tough question. To, um, probably... Maybe, maybe this is recency, but the Winnipeg's first win, as exciting as that was for the Bombers, Hamilton really wasn't in contention in that game for long stretches. And, and, um, you know, I enjoyed that game. There was some exciting plays in it, but in terms of competitiveness, certainly in, in recent memory, it's, it's one of the least competitive great cup games that, that I've seen. Because as I said, they, they tend to go down to the final whistle or the last few drives. What's the most memorable, one of the most re- memorable regular season games that you've ever seen, whether it be in person or on TV, whether it was recent or as a kid that you remember? Oh, there's some good ones. Uh, what was the one a couple years ago where Brian Burnham made that incredible two-point catch uh, where he had like the tip of one toe in bounds? I forget who the Lions were playing, but it went to overtime and they won. He he caught it with just like seconds left in the game. And I can remember uh, being there for that game and, and seeing it happen. People already left, of course, because they don't know that anything can happen in the CFL. And that catch will just stay with me forever. I don't even remember who they played, but that catch and the way it finished has been one of the best I've I've ever seen in person. In your opinion, Who's the best receiver in CFL history? Ooh, best receiver in CFL history. I gotta go. I gotta go with Milt Stegall. I'm just the uh, the amount of touchdowns he caught, the deep threat he was. I'll go with Stegall over Simon. Um, yeah, that's that's my my choice there. And who would you say is the greatest quarterback in CFL history? I, I will say, of course, it's Anthony Calvillo, or actually Doug Flugie, Calvillo, and Warren Moon are the top three. Uh, I think a guy, if you want my, my hot take on a guy who doesn't get enough credit for how good he was at, at the time he played, uh, we don't give enough love to the rifle, Sam Echeverry, for playing back in the day. And the, the numbers he put up in, in that time period were absolutely insane. Uh, but you got to go Flugie in terms of... Uh, you know, dominance at his peak, Calvillo in terms of his overall career, and then probably most talented is is Moon. What's your favorite football movie of all time? Favorite football movie? Um, I like I like Rudy. I like Remember the Titans. Uh, and I'll be honest, this is a bad movie objectively by every standard, but I'm a sucker for Draft Day because I love draft stuff. So I've seen that movie more times than I would care to admit publicly just because I, I like it. It's completely unrealistic, of course, and just objectively bad in, in every way. But it's like it's like mental popcorn. It's just, you don't have to think about it. It's just fun. What's a football opinion that you will die on the hill for that is unpopular? Uh, I don't know about unpopular, but I'll die on the hill for the ratio. For me, that's the most important thing. Um, I love I love football. I love the CFL, 
but if there wasn't a ratio in the CFL, then I would probably find something else to do with my life, to be entirely honest with you. That's how important that is to me in terms of, you know, it's value to the sport in Canada in, in general. And I, I think it's, um, it's one of the, the best rules in all of pro sports to be able to incentivize national content and development. That's really important to me. So that's the hill I would die on. And if there was one U sports QB who you would like to have seen have a full CFL career, who would it be? Ooh, there's some good ones on that list that I would love to see. I'll say Kyle Quinlan um, simply because on that 2011 Grey Cup in, in BC, oh, well, the day before I went to the 2011 Vanier Cup, which is arguably the greatest football game ever played in this country. And I got to watch Kyle Quinlan up close and personal on that game where he threw for like 500 yards and rushed for 200. It was a, a an insane, insane performance by him to win that game. Um, and I would have liked to see what he could have done uh, at the pro level had he, he chosen to go that route because um, he wasn't always as consistent as some of the others, but at the high end, uh, nobody was more exciting. JC, with that, I want to thank you for having been on today's episode. It was super awesome to get to chat Canadian football with you and finally get to flesh out and and break down a lot of CFL news and analysis from this year. It was a pleasure, man. It was The pleasure was all mine, Matthias. Thanks for having me on. And thank you to the listener for enjoying today's episode of Three Down Nation contributor JC Abbott. First and goal from the one. This is it, Stiegel! Thanks for listening to today's episode of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Check out our social media pages for more at huddleup underscore MB. For full audio, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For full video, head over to YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Tune in next week for another great episode. See you next time.